Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. My name is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books, the most recent being in the house of Tom Bombadil. I've been a professor of philosophy and invested in real estate. And enough about me. Why don't we go over to you, Tom, introduce yourself, and then on to Glenn, and then back to me, because it's my day. I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, systematic theology, Christian thought, Christian ethics, and a few other things. Uh, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associated at Reflections Ministries and a retired history professor. Well, today I want to talk about C.S. Lewis and his book, Miracles. And the reason I, uh, you know, thought about this book is I'm working on a book that uh, required me to do some, you know, hard thinking about miracles. And the book is a commentary on the book of Acts. So Acts, uh, as many of our listeners know, is about the immediate, um, well, uh, repercussions uh, in the lives of the disciples who become apostles uh, following uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And uh, connected to that, of course, is his ascension into heaven. All of that takes place either before the book of Acts begins or in the first chapter or the first half of the first chapter. And then what we see uh, following that is essentially the apostles witnessing to the fact that they have seen Jesus alive, that he has risen from the dead, and they are witnesses to that fact or of that fact, and then, of course, his ascension as well. Now, um, what I think is, is really striking about the book of Acts is essentially from that point on, from the point uh, at, you know, that we see at the very beginning of the story in which Jesus is presenting himself to his apostles, he, he uh, has to prove to them that he is alive, which is a fascinating thing to consider. We're told that he gives them many proofs to the effect that he is who he says he is and that he's not a ghost and so forth. And then he talks to them about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends into heaven uh, after telling them to remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promised spirit. But uh, from that point on, what we have is they have had the case you know, made to them and they believe it. Jesus has risen from the dead. And then from that point on, we have what could be described as a series of courtroom dramas in which the apostles uh, proclaim the resurrection of Christ to uh, Jewish authorities, to Roman authorities, to people that they meet along the course of the way. Um, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Cornelius and his house, uh, Cornelius the Centurion, and so forth. But uh, another thing that occurs, of course, it's a, a very important uh, theme that runs throughout the book of the uh, book of Acts, is that this witness is to pre be presented to uh, people from all nations. And so what we have then is the challenge of incorporating these Gentile believers, these non-Jewish believers, into what is essentially at the very beginning of the story, the book of Acts, a Jewish church. And there are a number of challenges uh, that uh, follow from that, that, that fact. But anyway, but everything then hinges upon this miracle, the miracle of Jesus rising from the dead. And what we have in Miracles by C.S. Lewis is a, uh, a treatise that's intended to um, respond to the objections of uh, educated and mod moderately educated people to the um, very possibility of the miraculous occurring. So I know uh, before we started the show, you know, I, I'd asked you guys whether or not you had read miracles, but maybe this is a good time for you to just think or respond to uh, the the book itself and your own thoughts on it. You've both read it. Um, like I noted, uh, this is some, a book that I, I reread. Uh, I read years ago and read with much greater profit here just about a month ago. Uh, but what are your thoughts on, on this particular book by C.S. Lewis, Miracles? 
what I'm struck by is it's been years uh, since I read it, but every discussion I see of miracles in pretty much everybody else who writes about it goes back to this book. Uh, it, it, I have been struck repeatedly how often people cite elements of his argument. Um, the one that I found most interesting and most useful uh, personally is the idea that uh, a miracle is not a suspension of natural law or anything of the sort. What it is, it's an addition of something new into the world after which everything proceeds according to natural law. Right. right. So when Jesus turns water into wine, for example, it happens instantly the water is transformed to wine, but after that, it behaves like normal wine. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a very important uh, feature to the argument because um, the you know idea that some people had that the intrusion of some kind of non-natural event into a you know sort of hermetically sealed natural order would disrupt everything and just kind of send everything you know, careening in who knows what directions. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. So Tom, any thoughts? Yeah, it, this book was a very influential on me when I was first kind of exploring um, the Christian faith and had, had already found it sort of compelling, um, but needed to kind of find it more compelling. <laughs> and I remember in a world so steeped um, in, in naturalism, um, just in the, I, you know, I remember even in university, the positivism and the, the reduction of everything down just to the bare minimum natural, you know, law was still in vogue. So this was kind of before the whole influx of postmodernity. Um, and one of the things I'm struck by when I, I look back over some of the chapters is that Lewis is, of course, drawing off of a rich wellspring of classical thought and Christian thought in particular, but he's addressing in, uh, the, the kind of interpretation of nature that really owes a lot to the likes of a David Hume or some other modernist figure. Um, he's not really engaging the classical view of nature um, so much as picking it up and bringing it back into the conversation, one in which there isn't a uh, conflict between the natural and the supernatural, um, but rather the supernatural is the setting of the natural. And, uh, and there aren't ironclad laws of nature so much as ordinary uh, laws that are a gift of the creature towards certain ends at which are open always to the creator. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. But that was one of the compelling aspects, I think, of, of this book when, when I first kind of stumbled into it and continued to read it. Yeah, I think to follow up on that, Tom, we, met, we talked about this earlier as well. We sometimes refer to classical theism in the course of the podcast, and people may wonder what it is, and they might be maybe even intimidated uh, when they look into it for themselves because of some of the terminology and the way things are described. Um, this book may be the best book I know of uh, that uh, introduce, can introduce a person to classical theism in, in layman's terminology, in other words, terminology that's accessible to most people. And uh, so for that reason, I think alone, it would be a great book for people to read if they haven't read it already. But I wanted to do is, is just kind of take us through the, uh, the table of contents, maybe say a few things about the structure of the book, and then dive into the, some, some of the, the rich things that Lewis has to say. And I've got, I must have 30 post-its here, so we won't run out of uh, rich things to talk about. And I was really disciplining myself, too. I was like, I, I can't keep, you know, I can't put, put a post-it on every page. I've got to be a little choosy, but I still ended up with all of these post-its. But on the t in the table of contents, and, the, and, and this table of contents is fun. It, it reflects, I think, almost a kind of Chestertonian tongue-in-cheekness sometimes in, in the title of some of those chapters. But uh, he starts off with, you know, a chapter entitled uh, The Scope of This Book. And then the second chapter is The Naturalist and the Supernaturalist, which is something you've just kind of dipped into a little bit there, Tom. Yeah. The uh, third chapter is The Cardinal Difficulty of Naturalism. I want to I spend a little bit of time on that because that's a fun one. 
And then he goes back to nature and supernature. Further, uh, the, another chapter entitled "A Further Difficulty in Naturalism." And then he spends a few chapters dealing with objections. So answers to misgivings as chapter six, uh, chapter seven, a chapter of red herrings. In other words, arguments that are made against uh, miracles that really don't have any validity. Um, miracles and the laws of nature. That gets back to what uh, you were talking about, yep. Glenn. Then a chapter not strictly necessary, and then another chapter on what could be described as red herrings, but this time horrid red things. That's a very <laughs> Chestertonian <laughs> kind of uh, title. Then uh, Christianity and religion, uh, the propriety of miracles. This is one of those things where, you know, maybe we're dealing with the kind of late Victorian uh, sense of neatness and whether or not an, a miracle would be rude because it interrupts the course of nature. <laughs> and so he, he kind of deals with that. And then he deals with the question of probability. And, and on probability, that's the chapter where he really goes after Hume. If you've been intimidated by David Hume, what you need to do is read that chapter on probability, and you'll see that Lewis basically uh, dresses, uh, undresses Hume and reveals him to be someone who's just you know, advancing, uh, you know, a question begging argument. Then the, the last three chapters, uh, I think were the richest part of the book. Uh, the uh, grand miracle in which he talks about the incarnation and then miracles of the old creation, meaning mm -hmm. the creation as we know it uh, at, at the moment, or uh, the, then the miracles of the new creation. And that's mm -hmm. referring to the resurrection. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a bit, but that's, that's the structure of the book. So each chapter is very rich, very good and uh, worth your time. But why don't we jump into things if you guys don't have anything you want to say at this point. If you do, go ahead and say it. You can go for it. <laughs> okay. Dive well, away. <laughs> All right. Um, so let me, let me take us to that chapter, that second chapter, the naturalist and the supernaturalist, and read something that Lewis says here, and we'll see how you guys uh, – want to run with this. He says uh, at the third or fourth sentence, right in the very first paragraph of that first chapter, some people believe that nothing exists except nature. I call these people naturalists. Others think that besides nature, there exists something else. I call them supernaturalists. Our first question, therefore, is whether the naturalists or the supernaturalists are right. Now, he, a little further down, he says in summary with regard to the naturalists, some philosophers have defined nature as, quote, what we perceive with our five senses. But this is also, or this also is unsatisfactory, for we do not perceive our own emotions in that way, and yet uh, they are presumably natural events. So he's pointing out a little inconsistency in the standard definition or the ex explanation of what uh, nature is and how it's experienced. But then on the next page, he says, nature means what happens of itself or of its own accord. What you do not need to labor for, what you will get if you take no measures to stop it. The Greek word for nature, physis, is, and that's where we get the word physics, is connected with the Greek verb for to grow. Latin, natura, with the verb to be born. The natural is what springs up or comes forth or arrives or goes on of its own accord. The given, what is already there, the spontaneous, the unintended, the unsolicited. Now, I think that's a pretty uh, rich paragraph, and there are a lot of things that we can say about it. One of the things that we can say about it is, I think, when we talk about our nemesis, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, when he's thinking about what is natural, he's thinking in this sense, something that's yeah. pre-rational, just spontaneous, it's kind of going on, it's going, you know, proceeding on its own. But I can tell, Tom, you want to jump in here. Go ahead. Well, well an interesting, I think... Um 
aspect of how he's defining this in a classical way is is he is he is also pulling into the definition i think something a little richer than maybe something sartre would adopt and that's it's the notion that he's talking about this is something that almost has an inherent nature that unfolds in ordinary ways and natural law kind of keeps that, but this wouldn't be something. I think eventually Sartre will undermine this whole thing. Um, but but I think that this is one of those places, those uh, the hangover of which naturalism still had some of the classical vision, which it owed a lot to Christianity in place, although it had ripped it out of its its theological or transcendent setting. Um, but one of the things that's very interesting here is he's talking about the physical and the natural as a given. And this is something you hear all the time with naturalists. They act as though nature itself is kind of just a brute fact of existence um, that somehow doesn't need to be accounted for. And then when you press them on it, they just kind of go back to that default. Well, it's here and I don't need to give an account for it. Um, but the thing is, is that this shows you a very strong limit within the naturalist frame of interpretation to begin with, because it's basing itself basically on a fundamental miracle or just a sheer act of pure magic. Because what you have is everything is just given, right? But one of the things you'll notice here is that it doesn't get away with it because it all of physical reality um, can't account for that given because of the simple reason that nature and all of the physical, by definition, is already existing. So existence, which is not the same as physical, but is the presupposition of all natural things, is the supernatural in which all natural things are mediated to us. We don't encounter nature, we encounter nature that is we counter through the being of nature, which is not merely what it is, but the existence of it. And this is something that Lewis, you'll hear him subtly echo without pushing out um, when he talks about the way they think of nature as self-existent, or because that's just an attribute of God. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm kind of probably getting ahead of, of where we're going, but I just wanted to show that in that little statement, I think Lewis is, is, is hinting towards where he's going. Yeah, I just want to respond a little, just, just quickly, and note that you, you brought up Sartre. I, I had mentioned Rousseau. Uh, they're both French. They're both <laughs> naturalists. Uh, <laughs> but I was wondering if you, 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 were, you, were tr you were wanting to say something specific about Sartre or if you had just used Sartre when you'd met Rousseau. But, I, I, I think I think uh, I, I I switched him in my head. Um, I thought you were referencing, <laughs> referencing that, so I, that was that was my my head uh, reading into reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's all right. Yeah. We 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 have similar, I think, uh, convictions about both those guys, Glenn. That's right. <laughs> yeah. What I find interesting, I've talked. <clears throat> I've talked to my students periodically about the naturalist's creation myth. And what you can't get away from is that there are at least two events that are inexplicable. The first of them is the Big Bang. Um, and in fact, in principle, it is impossible to find out anything prior to the Big Bang because the laws of physics wouldn't apply. Right. The second is the formation of life. The first law of biology is that life doesn't come from non-life. Right. So how did life come into existence? You know, yeah. Just like how did the universe come into existence? Nothing produces nothing. So th those are two places where you cannot really rely on anything having to do with the, um, uh, with the natural world. Right, right. I think Tom's phone is ringing there. Actually, that's mine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we'll let you take care of that. But while, while, while we're thinking about what you what you just mentioned, the way you put it, Glenn, I think is is really apropos. What we have here are two myths, two two naturalist creation myths, meaning that they don't uh, sub they're not subject to the same sort of rules of proof. That they that naturalists would require of everything else. These are sort of uh, 
exceptions to the rule that uh, when we come to these two subjects, uh, the Big Bang and the emergence of life, we just um, have a an atheist of the gaps yeah. <laughs> or got our nature of the gaps, you know, with regard yeah. to those, you know, I've, I've used Darwin of the gaps. <laughs> that's right. That's good. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. And I, I want to add, because that, that's a very important thing. The way the, the principle that there is an infinite uh, qualitative leap that cannot be jumped between, between nothing and something. And it doesn't matter how many uh, qualitative steps you have, that's not going from nothing to something because qualitative, I mean, quantitative steps, sorry, quantitative steps, because quantitative steps are something, right? So it doesn't matter how many you, you get to. So coming from nothing to that is, is you're, you're already dealing with uh, two fundamental ontological um, gaps, if you will, that can't be leapt over. But you could even go with, like Aquinas will take Aristotle and say, look, I believe in creation ex nihilo, but even if there was an eternal creation in nature, it still wouldn't get us off the hook with needing a self-existent creator for all of it. The reason is because even if creation never had a temporal beginning, it has an ontological beginning because it isn't grounded in itself as, a, as the source of its being, it requires that which is existence by nature in order to be. So you, you know, so, but Aquinas will say revelation has taught us that there is an, a, a, um, a, a, a ontological and temporal beginning. And then we are seeing now certain science, uh, science is confirming that. So it's, it's an important thing to note because the classical vision um, doesn't, doesn't need us to come up with a scientific proof that there's a beginning to still account for the fact that nature owes all that it is to um, the, the, the supernatural. Yeah, and it's a, it's a subtle and challenging argument for us to, to comprehend, though, Tom, because yeah. we tend to take the existence that we enjoy for granted in, in other words yeah. now if you look at that term take for granted it actually gets at the truth of things that existence is granted and we've received it <laughs> but what we often mean by taken for granted is uh we are ungrateful because we don't acknowledge the the grant that there is a party that was uh responsible for bringing us into existence and bringing all things into existence. And so, but, but once you get to that point where you see, okay, uh, Darwin of the gaps here, uh, is logically <laughs> incoherent. That gets us to a couple of other things that, that Lewis brings out in terms of what's wrong with naturalism uh, in terms of its incoherence. One has to do with freedom and the other has to do with the status of reason itself. What is its origin and uh, how does it work? So let's take a look at the first of these two. Um, he says here, again, in that first chapter on the naturalist and the supernaturalist, no thoroughgoing naturalist. So hmm. that's an important qualifier, no thoroughgoing naturalist, which means that there are naturalists who cheat, naturalists who make exceptions, etc. <laughs> but no thoroughgoing naturalist believes in free will. Okay. For free will would mean that human beings have the power of independent action, the power of doing something more or other than what was involved by the total series of events. And any such separate power of originating events is what the naturalist denies. So let's 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 sort of play this out. Let me let me sort of, you know flesh this out for for listeners. If we say that the order of nature, the events uh, that we see unfolding within it, are entirely self-referential and uh, bounded with each other, and there's no point of entry from the outside at all, that would mean that even this argument or this conversation that we're engaged in right now is nothing more than a series of natural events that have unfolded in the way that they that that they have to bring this about, including the biochemical phenomena that, that is going on inside our brains right now, which lead to the words that we speak and create another set of, you know, synaptic uh, uh, connections in each other's minds and lead to us, you know, speaking again and so forth. And that 
is the entire picture. There, there is no real freedom in in, in a uh, genuine sense. Now we might we might concede the need for kind of the fiction, a kind of uh, a social fiction that is uh, in place for the purpose of allowing people to, you know, move on in an unhindered way or do things that they, that they would like to do, or even hold people responsible for their actions in a legal framework. But all of that is just kind of a social con- set of conventions that are playing to uh, an illusion that we, that we all possess, which we call free will. Anyway, yeah, any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Now, we actually have to take this a step further. Uh, if you listen to someone like William Provine, who's an atheist who talks about free will, the problem is really more fundamental. Um, in a lot of ways, it's almost an ontological problem because there is no ghost in the machine. Mm-hmm. Right. You are simply a machine. There, uh, what yeah. you think of as you does not really exist. You are nothing more than an epiphenomenon of brain chemistry. Right. And so there is no you in you to have free will. Mm-hmm. It, it actually has to do ultimately with whether or not everything, you know, we're getting to the first principles. Is everything material? If everything is a material, <clears throat> you are your body, you are your brain chemistry. And it's not clear what you can do to change that because you are simply a product of that. Yeah. You know, the science fiction author who plays with this problem a lot is Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. the guy behind uh, Minority Report and uh, other, you know, works of fiction that deal with the nature of consciousness. Like, well, do we, Android stream of electric sheep. Yeah. Which was turned into Blade Runner. So mm-hmm. all of his films are really, really quite engaging and fascinating because they're getting at this, this problem, this, this question. Mm-hmm. If, if we are merely machines made of meat, uh, as it was so marvelously put by who was that that said that I can't remember, <laughs> but if that's the case, if it, then why not just manipulate uh, the ba- the brain chemistry however we'd like? Well, this is also the question that's at you know in play with the Matrix, because when you're dealing with the Matrix, then the question is, well, if sort of our consciousness is the is the sum total of of what it means to be alive and what really makes us who we are is the stuff that's going on sort of internally in our mental activity, you know, brain activity, then why shouldn't we prefer this pleasant illusion that, you know, is produced by the matrix to the harsh reality of a world that's been, you know, you know, utterly destroyed. Mm -hmm. Tom, go ahead. Yeah, with that point, I think this is why I never understood people like Richard Dawkins. I mean, here's somebody who would would be a naturalist by his own claim, a materialist, and yet someone who thinks truth somehow transcends the material formation of each person to where it can condemn certain people's thoughts as what? Unnatural? I mean, isn't everything natural? Why are some, you know, if he just wants to say that people, (laughs) certain people who have the Dawkins view are going to be able to direct their evolution um, versus religious people who are going to stifle it. Well, wouldn't that be part of the the natural selection anyway? And wouldn't wouldn't you just let it run out? He's he's all of a sudden incorporating kind of. Christian view of truth, Christian view of the significance of our own own species to care about it in ways that a cold, dead nature wouldn't. Um, And then on top of it is you hear naturalists tend to say, well, you know, no, we can understand truth because truth is the way we've been taught to accord with our environment. But there is nothing about learning to adapt to your environment that necessitates it's being aimed at truth. It could clearly be aimed at delusions in order to help, again, protect us in certain circumstances and against certain so kinds right. of things. Um, so there, there is no reason. So this is why you'll see Lewis say, you know, if, you know, there, if there are reasons to believe the truth of naturalism and naturalism is true, well, then those reasons themselves are something we would not really take as true and compelling because they are the byproduct of what naturalism says they are. Um, Chance, 
not directed at truth, at best adaptions to our environment to help us survive. And if that's the minimum at which, um, you know, our reason is aimed, then for them to take any kind of way of trying to convince people of it just doesn't make a lot of, you know, long-term sense. I mean, if they want to, they can, but, you know, you'd think they'd go through like David Hume and play chess to, you know, ignore the dark (laughs) truth. (laughs) Well, you know, it, it always struck me as absurd that the people who will, you know, the honest atheist will tell you that you don't have free will, and then they'll they'll try to convince you of that. Now think about that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think that that is that is uh, telling, but it also, as Tom noted, uh, reveals a a framework of value that they just can't get away from. Yeah. Uh, now, on one hand, they deny a certain set of things that they want to deny because it's convenient for them to deny those things, but they use another set of things that they can't support in order to make it seem as though their position is morally superior. Go ahead. Go ahead. Glenn. Yeah. Now being fair, the continental atheists don't make this mistake. Yeah. yeah. Um, a number of the continental atheists will refer to the Dawkinses of the world, the Anglo atheists as being what they call Christian atheists. Yeah. Right. <laughs> atheists who've, who've, that, that's their terminology. Atheists who've uh, absorbed a bunch of Christian ideas and are trying to maintain them, even though there's no foundation for them. Or you could be like Nietzsche and just call them blockheads. That's what he referred to all the empiricists and, you know, people like uh, uh, Mill, you know. L- let me let me uh, read something here from Lewis, though, that gets right at what we're talking about, because this is where he goes. This, this is more or less the nail in the coffin for naturalism when it comes to, to, to Lewis. It's basically the self-refuting argument. He says, if feeling if the feeling of certainty which we express by words like must be and therefore and since is a real perception of how things outside our own minds really must be well and good. So he's talking about, you know, uh, reality outside the mind. But if this certainty is merely a feeling in our own minds and not a genuine insight into realities beyond them, if it merely represents the way our minds happen to work, then we can have no knowledge. And by the way, this is the the core of his argument in The Abolition of Man, where he's talking about this uh, book, uh, this introduction to the English language or English grammar or something, what he refers to as the green book. And the signifiers are are said to uh, only point to the subjective experience of people. In other words, when a person says that's beautiful or that's sublime, they're not actually saying anything about the things outside their mind. They're just referring to the feelings that uh, they have concerning those phenomena. Well, you, you just destroy the human race at that point. You know, if you, if you follow, and we're seeing it play out on a massive scale in our society right now. So it's as though our society has has you know begun this thought experiment in real time and in, in real space, let's just suppose that there is no truth. Let's just suppose that this is all in our heads. What do we, what do we, th- what, what, where will this go? Well, we're seeing it. everything's falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that's very interesting with what he's saying right there is back to that point that if we think that our, you know, our brains have equipped us in a purely materialist way, to get a hold of the truth of things, but we reduce that truth of things to merely the natural, then what we end up doing is eliminating the possibility within naturalism of any abstract abstract truth about reality as a whole, because there's one thing we don't confront in our confrontation with the environment, and, and that is truth about the whole. We only have access to the part that comes to us through our senses. So on naturalists' own terms, any abstract truth we get from that about the whole is not something within its reach or range. It is a metaphysical interpretation of the natural, which is not something that one can encounter through one's dealing with physical physical reality alone. And so, in a sense, they're admitting that to talk about naturalism as an interpretation of, of reality, one is already lifted out of the natural into the metaphysical to give an abstract 
interpretation of that, which isn't grounded in one's direct experience um, with nature. Uh, Glenn, you wanted to say something? Um, yeah, I did. And I just lost it. <laughs> okay. if, if, if it's important, it will come back. Uh, right, right, right. Well, let me, this, this raises the question, where does reason come from then? If reason is not simply something that emerges from just matter itself and energy, then where does it come from? Well, this is something that... Um, actually... Go ahead. That, that, that cued me back to where I was going. Okay. Uh, uh, planting a... Plantinga's argument against naturalism is based on the very same things we're talking about here. You know, his argument fundamentally boils down to if Darwinian naturalism is true, then science, then there's no reason to believe in science. Right. Because we are, we are, we evolve to survive, not to find truth. Right. Finding truth is almost incidental to survival right. uh, because, you know, he gives an example of a guy he calls Paul who encounters a tiger and he runs away from the tiger. And he gives a long list of possibilities of why Paul might run away from the tiger, most of which are absolutely absurd. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter which one Paul believes, because as long as he runs away from the tiger, he survives. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there is no. Uh, really, uh, a, no, no real sense of cause and effect, no ability to uh, intuit or deduce genuine cause uh, for why things occur the way they do. There's just simply uh, so you, what you have is input and response. And if, so long as the response gets you away from the danger, then that's as far as it goes. Um, I suppose you could say that people could compare notes and maybe come at things a little more, I guess. But even then the question is, is why would, why would one argument prevail over another? You know, even so. A, a, a concrete example for millennia. And I mean, millennia people knew how to produce iron out of ore, but they considered this a magical process the tempering of iron and all of those kinds of things was magical because it involved a transmutation of material. They knew how to do it. They did it right, but they had utterly the wrong idea of what was going on. They could eventually, though, by applying the correct approach or the, a, a thorough approach to, uh, to investigate what is occurring, arrive at a better understanding. Oh, sure. And that is, in fact, what happened. Right. But the point is that you can be very, very successful at doing right. something and not have a clue about what's really going on with it. Right, right. So this is where Lewis goes at this point. Uh, what he, more or less, well, I think what, he, what he's actually arguing for is being itself is a miracle and so is reason, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the, the, the capacity that we have to reason. So here's what he says. On these terms, the theist position must be a chimera, nearly as outrageous as the naturalist. Nearly, not quite, it obtains or abstains from the crowning audacity of a huge negative. But the theist need not and does not grant these terms. He is not committed to the view that reason is comparatively re a comparatively recent development molded by a process of selection which can select only the biologically useful. For him, reason, the reason of God, is older than nature. And from it, the orderliness of nature, which alone enables him to know her, is derived. For him, the human mind in the act of knowing is illuminated by the divine reason. So... For us as uh, believers in the supernatural, we have a supernatural insight into the order of nature, why it works the way it does and why it obeys certain rules and laws and why it is regulated the way it is and so forth. Anyway, any thoughts on that? Well, what you get with, with nature here is that you have, you have form right? That isn't arbitrary. <laughs> They'll talk of laws of nature that govern everything. But what you have here is a creation that exhibits in a creaturely way, 
in a limited way, the nature of God that God is in fullness. So the fact that there are forms that are understandable and that aim towards certain um, fulfillments of their nature, the fact that you have uh, an intelligible world in which we can participate in um, abstracting truth from all of those things we encounter and experience um, points in the direction that these are grounded in the, the mind of God and that ultimate reality has has uh, reason at its heart and not as a epiphenomena of chance and random processes. Yeah, there was uh, a poster at Michigan State years ago that had on it Maxwell's equations for the behavior of electromagnetic radiation. In other words, how does light behave? How do you explain it? And Or how do you describe it? And this was uh, bracketed by, on the top, God said, set of equations, and there was light. <laughs> I think that that, you know, they, they were making a joke. The guys who made the poster were making a joke. But there's a profound element of truth there. Yeah. God understood what he was doing when he made light. And what we are doing as we study light is, in the words of Kepler, thinking God's thoughts after him. Right. We're discovering what God did in the creation of light. Notice it's what he did, not how he did it. Right. But right. what he did in the creation of light. And you know, it, our reason, our ability to understand this is based on our being made in the image of God and, and the fact that rationality is something that in a finite way we share with God. And this is a fundamental mistake that some critics of the Christian faith or just religion in general make, but I'm thinking specifically with regard to the Christian faith, because within Christianity, we have the uh, sort of the room to acknowledge the efficient material causes that are at work in any process. In other words, as Tom likes to remind us, we don't live in kind of a zero-sum universe where the more God does, the less room there is for the creature. What yeah. we have is a God who makes the agency of the creature, including these natural processes, possible. So it's not as though it's one ex excludes the other. And I think that sometimes our atheists uh, or the atheists and the naturalists assume that's what we're arguing for, that yeah. we don't need to have all of this intermediary kind of activity. It, it's either just God said it and it happens, or it's all of this stuff and then the phenomena, uh, and those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, they, 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 I think they think of causality in the way in which they think of sort of a grandparent gives birth to a, you know, a parent um, that gives, you know, eventually gives birth to a parent, a parent. So once the grand, you know, or once the father gives birth to the child, the child then has their own being and they run with it. That is not what we're saying. That's not what we're talking about. They think on that plane of reality. What we're saying is both of those things are on what we would call, um, you know, sec the level of secondary causes. They exist within the fact of existence, which none of them have access to owning because none of them are the source of existence itself. And even when they have existence, they don't contain that in their being other than by constant reception of it because they're not the source of it. Everything that is creaturely at every moment of its being, its existence, is dependent on the one who is existence in order to both be what it is and the fact that it is. So the primary cause is active the whole stretch of all secondary causes. There is no moment in which the supernatural is not, in some sense, underwriting and directing what we would call the natural. So this already shows that because the natural is always dependent for every moment for what it is and that it is on God, therefore it's never independent. It never has an autonomous nature. It can never run off its own steam. So it's always porous and open to the power of the creator. Yeah, I think maybe what we can do here, just to summarize, because we're, we're already well along in our show, and I do want to get <laughs> the to point. <laughs> the last three chapters. <laughs> but, but but what we've done, just to summarize, Lewis, is, Lewis has identified nature and supernature. He's helped us to see that nature can't 
fully explain its own phenomena, things that are going on within it, namely reason or free will. Uh, so there are these qualifiers that, you know, create a, I guess, maybe need for a, a more full and a capacious understanding of how nature and supernature relate to each other. And you've been playing that out, uh, combing that out for us, Tom. Uh, so reason, ontology, and uh, he does get into this too, moral uh, uh, reality. These, all these things cannot be fully uh, supported or appreciated or explained with the naturalist position. So let me give you this, this one last quote in this section, and then we'll jump to those last three chapters. He says here, but logical thinking, reasoning, and he uses a capital R for reasoning, had to be the pivot point of the argument because of all the claims which the human mind puts forward the claim of reasoning to be valid is the only one which the naturalist cannot deny without, philosophically speaking, cutting his own throat. Hmm. That's the point. So he's put to bed the naturalist position because of its inner, um, well, contradictions. But I want to jump now to these last three chapters because this is where, you know, he's playing out what is a miracle? In other words, instances of it and trying to understand the biblical data uh, and understand it theologically, philosophically, so forth. He starts off in the, in the 14th chapter, as you as recall, the, the last three chapters are the grand miracle, the miracles of the, new, of the old creation, and then the miracles of the new creation. But here, the grand miracle is this. This is the first sentence or the first two sentences in this chapter. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Correction, three sentences. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Now, this is interesting because what this implies is that there's a sign character uh, and also a teleological character to all of the miracles. In other words, they're just not arbitrary, freaky little things that serve no purpose. Like, uh, what, what, what Gnostic gospel is it? The gospel of Thomas in which we have the boy Jesus making clay pigeons out, out of uh, some you know, dirt and, and, um, and water. And then uh, he claps and they turn into real birds and he's, he's just thrilled at the event. Maybe that would even still be... Uh, possible to understand within the framework of this, but uh, of this larger sort of uh, framework that he's presenting. But it does, that does have a kind of arbitrary quality to it, just sort of a entertainment character, you know, sort of quality to it, rather than some sort of revelatory and signifying purpose behind it. And we see in the New Testament, particularly with the miracles that Jesus performs, that they're intended to say something or speak to some reality that people need to understand. So let's think about the feeding of the 5,000. You know, what we have with that, with that miracle is, you know, a bunch of people coming back, uh, you know, later uh, in John's gospel and, and asking for second helpings. <laughs> they, they, they want this on a regular basis, right? And Jesus uses that uh, very request to drive home the point that they missed the point the first time around, <laughs> that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven that must, must be consumed, that, it, that, that that miracle was intended to point to something significant uh, outside of itself. It wasn't just simply to say God cares about hungry people, which of course he does, but that's not the main point. Anyway, so any thoughts on that? I can see you guys are, uh, I can see you ruminating. Yeah, I think that um, Lewis says, I, I'd be interested, I have to look at the chronology here, but it, it makes me wonder if he's been working on Athanasius's on the Incarnation. Yeah, he actually does get into Athanasius in this chapter. So, yeah, I, I bet you you're, he has been. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting, though, when you talk about the sign character and then also the, its relation to those kind of acts of God that shows God's power in a distinct kind of way. 
um, in, in that this is, you know, this act is of divine origin. You go back to the story of the garden, right, where you have you have the temptation of Eve first and then then Adam through Eve. But you have basically a whole set of sort of supernatural ish kinds of signs trying to point to to the wrong sign giver, if you will. So here you have is, you know, that, you know, spiritual being, you know, Lucifer, Satan, um, um, manifesting in a creaturely serpent, doing something that they don't do, talk, right, of, of their own ordinary natures, um, and showing basically, look, look, look how you can transcend the ordinary if you just partake of, of this, right? You, you have this sacrament, if you will, you eat what you're not supposed to, and then, and, and then th this sign points to you being as God, basically. And you can be like me, and you can, you can kind of lord over the rest of creation your way. And then when you get that, that, what you get going on in the rest of redemption history is really the true sign character of all these things as they point to the one who is to redeem us, but also to the sort, the true source of bringing heaven and earth together. You know, the incarnate one Christ who, who will be all in all. So it is kind of fascinating that, that you have that playoff in, in, in the Christian um, notion of signs and reference references. Yeah, I just want to correct myself. Uh, a minute ago, I said that Athanasius is referred to in the chapter on the grand miracle, and maybe there is a, a point in the chapter in which he's mentioned, but it's earlier in the book, the, uh, that chapter entitled Horrid Red Things, when he gets into Athanasius, but we can't go there at the moment. <laughs> but uh, this idea, though, that uh, this entry into the created world is in some sense the most stupendous thing of all, and really is, is, and this is Lewis's point, if this can happen, then anything else can happen. If God, the trans, you know, God who transcends all things can enter into the create, to his creation in the way that Christians confess, then there really is no justification for any Christian to, uh, you know, to accept the, uh, miracles uh, as uh, possible and uh, legitimate. Anyway, just to follow up on that. Now, what is at work, though, in all of that? What is what is sort of the point of the incarnation? And this is what Lewis gets into in this chapter and tries to, to develop and comb out. He says, the destiny which Christianity promises to man clearly involves a redemption or remaking of nature, which could not stop at man or even at this planet. Now, let's stop and think about this uh, a little bit. This is a very remarkable and, uh, I guess, astonishing assertion. It's even more astonishing than the idea that Jesus came to redeem us in order to take us out of the world and transport us to some kind of spiritual state called heaven. What we're, what we're, what's being uh, asserted by Lewis here, and I believe that he's correctly summarizing the doctrine of redemption in the Christian faith, is that the trees that I see outside right now, the sun that's in the sky, the physical body that is part of my constitutive being, all of these things are redeemed in Christ. And when he get, goes beyond uh, the planet, when he says, you know, or even at this planet, think about that. That's pretty uh, incredible in the, in the, you know, sort of the full sense of the word incredible. It's hard to believe, <laughs> but uh, that's the challenge. That's so. So, in other words, when people uh, say to Christians, "What you have to say is just absurd," and you want us to believe incredible things, what we can respond is, to them is with, "You haven't heard the half of it. <laughs> it's even bigger than you think. <laughs> it's it's the it's the whole shebang." <laughs> now, this I think has. It clearly has implications for eschatology. It has implications for how we regard 
you know, the ecological, uh, you know, the sort of system that we find ourselves in, it has implications for just everything. Um, and I don't think we've just, I don't even think we've begun to scratch the surface of, of what it means. But anyway, I can see you guys are ready to, to respond to this. Yeah, I think that that the, you know, I, Lewis's argument here strikes me as being almost ironclad from the, percent, from the perspective of a Christian, that if in fact the incarnation is real, everything is possible. Um, it's, it's just as simple as that. And if you accept the incarnation, there's no reason to reject other miracles. And I think that when you look at the history, liberal theologians actually understood this, which is why they get rid of the, when they get rid of the incarnation, they get rid of everything else. Right. You know, it just, it, it's just the way that, that the history has worked out. And the interesting thing of this, of course, I've argued for a while now that a Christian's worldview is inevitably made up of, of elements of their culture plus elements of scripture, and the question ends up being which one is dominant. And when you look at the development of liberal theology, it was clear that what was dominant was not faith, but, well, at least not faith in the word, but faith in the world, faith in what the culture was telling them, which means that if you've got a culture that says miracles can't happen, you've got to throw everything out and then try to figure out what to do with the gospel from there. Yeah, you, you end up with the problem uh, of a lot of uh, sinecures who are basically, you know, want, not wanting to give up their steady income. <laughs> and, yeah, if you look at the, you look at the great divorce, you see a prime example of this. Right. Oh, yeah, the bishop definitely. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but and then you know, uh, but is is it possible to to do that with any integrity? I don't think so. I mean, you end up with some kind of just horrific lie. I remember R Rosemary read for Ruther, if you, you may recall the, the feminist theologian from the 70s and 80s. I think she was at Boston College, maybe Boston yeah, University. Yeah. And they asked her one time, well, if, if, if you've rejected Christian orthodoxy, then why are you still here? And she, her, her, her answer was simple, direct, and honest. Xerox machines. <laughs> that was it. In other words, this is where the resources are, and I'm going to use those resources. Uh, yeah. And I've got my own agenda, and uh, you know, doesn't matter that I'm being, in, you know, in disingenuous. I'm just going to pursue this agenda. But anyway, I, I think um, that that's also where you know the rejection of the virgin birth ties, and I think the rejection of the virgin birth and the incarnation that is why that it be, is it sort of the sticking point for these people because if you accept that everything else follows including the resurrection of the dead right anyway do you have something you wanted to add there tom yeah yeah two points one one was related just to what glenn said i think he's right on the money when he talks about the way in which when 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 theologians started to lose interest in jesus christ as classically understood by Christianity is where we really get modern atheism, um, we, uh, where we start to get the kind of voluntaristic conception of God, which eventually will lead to a kind of deism versus a naturalism versus a humanism to all the problems today. Uh, a great book, very hard to read, but very uh, important in this regard on this topic was Michael Buckley's At the Origins of Modern Atheism. I don't know if you remember that flying around, but, but that really was talking about the abandonment of sound Christology and Trinitarian thinking that governed true Christian theism um, led to a kind of truncated Christian theism that that we see in, in liberal theology that eventually just spills over into either naturalism or pantheism at some point. Um, but one of the things to note is it is the very working through the metaphysical implications of what Scripture taught about Christ as God and humanity in those classical doctrines that also shed light on the nature of Christ as creator in relation to creation, the creator-creature relation, which are fitting in their, in their being united 
um, rather than in conflict. Um, and Christ, of course, exemplifies that as the firstborn of all creation, right? Um, and so following that is the kind of supernatural life we're called to indwell. And I think sometimes we as Christians in, in a naturalistic world lose confidence in that. Yeah, we're going to talk about things like the resurrection and the incarnation, but we're also going to talk about something that is nearly as impossible, loving your enemy. <laughs> right? The fact that this is something that can be indwelt and is the true nature of things because Christ has become incarnate. Yeah, I think what we're presented with in our time is a series of cul-de-sacs or dead ends that people have gone uh, down, and we now have no excuse to go down again. I think that if we go back to my earlier image of a, a, a supposal or a thought experiment, let's just suppose that we can explain everything naturalistically and we find ourselves in a civilization that's just falling apart, not only because it can't justify reason itself, but because we can't even sort out within ourselves the difference between uh, illegitimate and, you know, uh, destructive passions and noble things and virtues anymore. We can't, we can't even, we can't even sort these things out and call people to these things authoritatively to the good things and the rejection of the, of the evil things authoritatively. So it's, it's all kind of coming to a, a, you know, a sort of a wall. And I think what's on the other side of that wall, what, I don't know what that wall will be, you know, made up of, Perhaps it's some huge global economic catastrophe. Perhaps it's just uh, a set of institutions dying out because they can't sustain themselves anymore because no one wants to participate in them. You know, I, I don't know how it's all going to play out. But on the other side of that, I think what we're going to have to embrace is the miraculous. We've got to get back to miracles. And we can't be shy about it. We can't apologize. We can't, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, shove it under the carpet and focus on ethics like we tend to. We have to be just right up front and say Christianity is based on miracles and uh, a, a few key miracles that are right at the heart of things, and they have to do with God and the future of the world. And this is a good place to, to I think, bring this in for a landing. And it's another quote from Lewis. With and this, he's referring to the work of redemption that's being been uh, in, in, you know begun, introduced or instituted through the incarnation. And he says, "For God is not merely mending, not simply restoring a status quo. Redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity would have been, more glorious than any unfallen race now is. If at this moment." The night sky conceals any such. He's referring to you know intelligent alien life. The greater the sin, the greater the mercy. The deeper the death, the brighter the rebirth. And this superadded glory will, with true vicariousness, exalt all creatures. And those who have never fallen will thus bless Adam's fall. Now that's a bold statement, wow. but uh, he's getting at something here. In other words, this there's. We're looking forward to something better than yeah. just a return to Eden. We're looking yeah. for, forward to something that um, never would have developed just sort of uh, spontaneously in, a, in an unfolding sort of way from that, that original beginning. Anyway, we've come to a point where we should wrap things up. Do you guys have anything else you want to say as we, as we conclude? How about you, Tom? Let's start with you. Um, I think it wraps up with yeah the the glorification or or what in the Greek world called uh, theosis and or the deification of all things to be elevated into their perfection and live in that that supernatural joy of relation with God and everything else, not touched by the corruptible. Great, great, Glenn. Yeah, and that precise point is the thing that is most notably lacking in most uh, evangelical and reformed theology today. Yeah. That we don't really appreciate what it means to be in Christ as Paul describes it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have an approach to uh, redemption that 
pits the juridical against the participatory. Yes. Where it's not a either or at all. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. You know, so uh, my 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 uh, treatment of the book of Acts will get into a lot of this stuff. I'm really, uh, you know, getting uh, excited about, you know, the prospects for it. And um, people who listen to the podcast on a regular basis over the next year and a half or more will be subject to my rantings uh, on that <laughs> matter going forward. But anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We do appreciate your interest and your support. Thank you for uh, listening to, all, to, the, to the end of this episode. And uh, we thank you, too, for sharing the podcast with your friends. Uh, we thank you for giving us good ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, we're told that when people give us those ratings, it helps uh, our visibility on those platforms. So if you haven't done it yet, uh, if you would, we'd appreciate it. Please do. And we are uh, grateful, too, for all the folks who financially support the show on an ongoing basis. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you.